HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. And I had a calendar reminder show up today because uh, Lonnie put some important dates in my calendar. Um, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out, we can't pay anybody. He is the worst. Oh my (laughs) God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. We've been working really hard behind the scenes on our newest season of Opening Soon, The Build, and we can't wait to share it with you the first week in April. In the meantime, we wanted to share one of our favorite hospitality insider podcasts as well. It's called Copper and Heat, and this episode is amazing deep dive into the world behind the Michelin Guide. Please enjoy. The starred list is aggressively French. Yeah. The Michelin Guide is aggressively French. (laughs) It is a French thing. But like the way that the starred system hasn't quite picked up. Yeah. And even as you were saying, even when it does try to recognize like street food, they don't do it properly. And the people that are reading the Michelin Guide don't understand You're listening to Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. I'm Katie Osuna. And today... I'm back. <laughs> it's Rachel, our other producer. We're wrapping up the season talking about... The Michelin Guide. Over the last six months, seven months, eight months, we have been doing a bunch of different research about the Michelin Guide. And... Oh boy. <laughs> What we did for this episode, we have a couple different interviews that we'll bring back. You've heard Krishnendu throughout the season. Beth 
Forest is going to come back, make an appearance, a little bit about their research into the Michelin Guide and restaurants. But also, Rachel put together this lovely spreadsheet that took all of the stars in the U.S. And then we did some different digging into what those stars mean. Should we start this by rating the Michelin Guide? <laughs> I love that, yes. I don't know if we should read it like, what did we think of the Michelin Guide before we started doing this? Yeah. And then at the end, we can re-rate the Michelin Guide. Re-rate the Michelin Guide. Definitions of the stars. One star, high-quality cooking, worth a stop. Two stars, exceptional cooking, worth a detour. Three stars, exceptional cuisine, Worth a special trip. Okay. I feel like that could also rate to how you go about finding the restaurants you want to go to. Got like, it. Okay, got we're going gonna, gonna to rate the Michelin Guide based okay. on their star system. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Based on 24-year-old Katie, mm-hmm. who was moving to the Bay Area, going into culinary school, super excited about working in a big city. 24-year-old Katie was like, Michelin Guide, three stars. Those were the restaurants that I was seeking to work in. At that age, were those places that you had much exposure to? Had you been to a lot of places like that? No. I think my only exposure to like Michelin level restaurants was like watching videos about Grant Ackett's on YouTube. So I was just like, I don't know where to start. So I'm just going to look at all the Michelin places and like three star Michelin places. And that's where I'm going to go work. So yeah, three stars. Okay. What about you? Okay. Mine is give me give me the timeline let's just do 24 rachel also okay keep it consistent i'd say two stars it wasn't something that i have ever really put in the effort to get two places or had even the ability to but it definitely was something that like was aspirational so you give it two stars two stars cool i'm not making a special trip got worth a detour yeah exactly (laughs) i'll detour The Michelin Guide is just so old. It's been around for so long, and it's an institution. But I think the origins were a little surprising to me when I first found out. The Michelin Guide started by the tire company, Michelin, French company. I don't know if you knew this. (laughs) Tires. Trying to encourage people to get into cars. So that's how it started. What the heck is a French tire company doing? Because partly they were selling propaganda. I learned a lot about the origins from Krishnandu Ray, who we've talked with for other episodes for this season. I'm Krishnandu Ray. I'm the professor of food studies at NYU. And also from Beth Forrest, who we talked to for our culinary school episode. I'm Dr. Beth Forrest. I am a professor of liberal arts and food studies at the Culinary Institute of America. And of course, Michelin Guide started about 1900 as a tire company to sell cars and as an incentive for people who have status to go out into these more rural areas to find that which is special and unique. They made these guides and at first they weren't just for food. They were like tourism guides. Places to drive to, you have to drive a long distance to get exceptional food. Stars really don't become in practice until 1926, and it becomes the guide of how to choose this restaurant. In 1931, they do the zero to three star system. And weren't inspectors brought in around the same time 
as they were introducing stars. Yeah. Yeah. A big part of the lore around the Michelin Guide is the anonymity of the inspectors. Nobody knows who they are. They're anonymous, blah, blah, blah. That's like the whole mystique around the Michelin Guide. But I did find that it was like, I think they said there's 120 worldwide that do this. And so there's like 10 inspectors in the U.S., I think is what they said. Which is just like, there are 10 people who are quote unquote objectively grading these things. I looked to see what the application process is. I'm like, what does it take to actually become one? And their website link was broken, so I couldn't actually get more information. The most that I could find was just that the position requires a minimum of five years of relevant experience, whatever that means, and then like being plugged into the scene, et cetera, et cetera, and extensive international knowledge of ingredients, culinary techniques, cuisines, and culinary fundamentals. I mean, whenever somebody says like culinary techniques and culinary fundamentals, it usually means quote unquote classic, which is French. (laughs) French training. So obviously all of these people have a certain bias toward what is considered worth it Mm -hmm. or whatever, even if they have like objective quote unquote rating criteria, which what did you say that there were five? So there's five. First one is quality of products. Second one is mastery of the flavor and cooking techniques. Third is the personality of the chef in his cuisine. (laughs) His cuisine. (laughs) Four, value for money. Five, consistency between visits. Wow. Yeah. Personality of a chef in their cuisine, in his cuisine. (laughs) Maybe I'm missing something because I am not a chef. But that just seems like such a weird way to phrase one of the five benchmarks of a place. Yeah. And I think even creativity, it is subjective, but then also the way that it's gone, anything that's described as creative, innovative, or like showing the personality, I think has become a word for how fucked can you make this food? (laughs) Like how much can you make like weird shit? And what do they mean by exceptional? And the standard in that sense is largely nouvelle French cuisine with a bit of Italian inflection and Japanese attention to fish and ingredients and plate presentation, which means a couple of things. You won't get that without a couple of million dollars on the decor. Okay? You won't get that without inventory in wine. Okay. And people like Indians, like, right, I never had a glass of wine until I came to the United States. I don't even, I didn't have a palate. So Indian food can, some of that works very well with some wine and you can do it. Upscale Indian restaurants do it. And we have drunk some beers with the British and then the German influences. We're largely IPAs and lagers. You can do some of that, but it basically goes with what would be called rice wines. But rice wine in India is poor people's. Hariya not valued. In some ways, I'm waiting for an Indian restaurant with a couple of million dollars of investment that can do to Indian rice wines what the Japanese did to sake, what the Koreans did to soju, etc. Okay? So in some ways, to score on that Michelin or World's Top 50, you will have to basically play to decor, a bit of celebrity chef name recognition. 
and wine list or alcohol list in some ways and plated cuisines that basically look somewhere between impressionism and kaiseki japanese all the plates look same more or less now okay preciousness on the plate and then the and the spanish added the foams and the spherifications but basically the plates are beginning are looking boringly predictable it's not really objective and we don't really know how they grade these things is it like a rubric is there a grading but it's still subjective right i think something that really was interesting to me was for value for money yes same because these places are so expensive we didn't get price breakdowns on every single place we did do just price breakdowns for the three-star places kind of assuming that those are going to be on the upper end Mm-hmm. So there's 14 three-star places in the U.S. Okay. What do you think the average is? What do you think the highest is? Oh, mm. okay. I feel like I have a skewed advantage because I know how much it costs yeah. when I was working there. But this was also five years ago that I worked in a place and it was significantly cheaper then. I'm going to guess the average is like 300 and the highest, i say something astronomical, like... 550. You were low for the highest one. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought that was astronomical. The most expensive place is 750. That's at Masa. 750. 750. If you do their counter experience, $950. Hot damn. Yeah. Wow. You're pretty on for the average is 382. No, oh, so I was I was a little low. <laughs> That is higher than I was expecting. But now going through that spreadsheet that you made, there's a lot more that are over 350 and a lot more in the 400s than I thought. And this is just for food, right? Not for beverage pairing. Not for beverage pairing, not for service, charge. This is just food base price. That's what I don't understand why the number four rating criteria thing is value for money. What does that even mean? You're spending $400... per person, we'll say. And it's worth the money that you paid. I don't know. It's just, what does that even mean? Value is such a strange word to choose. Yeah, because usually when when you say like value for the money, you're talking about, oh, I spent 20 bucks at Costco for, I don't know. (laughs) Great value. Great value. Are people really looking at the Michelin Guide to be like, oh, I got a great deal on this four-hour experience? It's even more confusing when you add in the element of the Bib Gourmand award that they also give to places. Mm -hmm. And this is their award for, they say, quote, exceptional food at moderate prices. So it's, can you get three courses below a certain value that's set for the area? So I think internally, all the different country regions that they go to have certain price points that are set for like affordability. Hmm. And that is how... If it's like really good food and also meets that price value. It's a weird distinction Mm -hmm. and like weirdly tiered, right? Yeah. Because it's like, oh, well, this is good food for you people that can't afford this $500 experience. (laughs) Yeah. When you look at the Michelin site, what they say, they like how the inspectors rank, they claim to not think about decor or things like that at all. But then you look at the list and, I mean, again, we don't know. 
but all of these places have a pretty specific style of decor when you look at them kind Mm -hmm. of across the board they're all very nice they're all very contemporary they all are very expensively outfitted and you just wonder like even if it's not something that they're actively grading towards or marking down Mm -hmm. it seems to make an effect but then they are awarding some like street food places stars in some countries but not in the u.s i don't think last i checked there there weren't any like food carts that had gotten the stars which again is just like a weird why why a strange distinction I think there are two things going on in Michelin. The three-star, two-star, one-star is the real Michelin. That's what they really wanted to evaluate. The rest is they've been, they look like fools when they came to New York, which is a much more populist place, a little more democratic in terms of its taste. But if they just did one-star, two-star, or whatever, it'll look very Eurocentric and Japanese. Let's call it Euro-Japanese-centric. Rachel put together this lovely spreadsheet. She went onto the Michelin website and took all of the stars in the U.S. And then we did some different digging into what those stars mean, what those different restaurants are, and paint the picture of what the Michelin Guide looks like in the U.S. When you look at the lists on the 222 restaurant lists, just the United States, only places that have received one to three stars, 85 of them are contemporary The next highest is Japanese. There were 45 places that they listed the cuisine as Japanese. One was listed as sushi. So I'm going to say 46 Japanese. Next most frequent is Californian with 14. Hmm. Korean with 11. French, 11. For me, the predictable ones are Italian and the new American innovative. The surprising part is how far the French have fallen in Michelin which is the most Francophile of spaces, Chinese, 6%. And Chinese is mostly coming up from middle, with largely students and children of elites in American universities. Most American universities have a huge contingent of Chinese students now who are living in these cities, who are renting or owning apartments that their parents have bought, And they are demanding a Chinese food that fits their palate. That's why so many hot pot places. And that is often young Chinese appetites. So Chinese food is coming in from the middle and Mexican from the bottom. This is about disruption. The disruption is a Mexican intervention in American food like we have never seen before other than in the Southwest, in the border region, but now with a lot more money and a lot more cultural capital, and that is blowing open the doors of American cuisine in exciting new ways. For me, the most astonishing and agonizing part of that American experience is that is the one group of indigenous cuisines. It is very difficult for most Americans to imagine a cuisine, not an ingredient. Okay? You can imagine turkey, you can imagine corn, we can imagine pumpkin, and we have been taught in schools. But Native Americans did not eat them just raw. They ate them in forms, in idioms. The things we usually associate as outsiders, I'm talking again of outsiders, not insiders. If we think of it something like fry bread, that is mostly reservation food because of the decimation of Native American ecology and Native American culture, which forced them onto basically refined flour, salt, sugar diets. That is the bane of the modern American diet. Thankfully, this big reshuffling of American palate today is also opening our palates back 
to what we lacked, what we missed, what we destroyed through settler colonialism that is re-emerging today as indigenous and Native American food. And think about Mexican food. So much of Mexican food is indigenous food. Okay, So in some ways, that is how the empire strikes back. And then there's a lot of other ones. Portuguese, two, Middle Eastern, three. Italian is only eight, which I thought was surprising. Interesting. American, nine. So Steakhouse is up to four. When you told me those numbers and that the bulk of them were contemporary, I was like, huh. What does that mean? Because that's this is how Michelin categorizes, right? Yeah, this is off of the Michelin website, so I'm assuming it's their categorization, however that is. Yeah, so when I looked into that, I filtered it and then started going through and looking at all their websites to either see if the restaurant identified themselves as something different or if like what the chef's background was, basically. And as I was going through, it's like a lot of them self-identify as like French, first of all, or French techniques with whatever flair, French techniques with modern ingredients, French techniques with local ingredients. It was like a lot of that. It was a lot of the chef said like classically trained, which a lot of these places said, quote unquote, classically trained. And this is something I saw on Twitter the other day, Kathy Irway, who's a food writer who I love. She she tweeted, I moved to replace the term, quote unquote, classically trained with, quote unquote, French trained when speaking about culinary school. Who's with me? And I was like, yeah, because it is just code word. Oh, yeah. I worked in fancy French restaurants or I worked in fancy fine dining, which are basically French techniques. So it was a lot of that, like classically trained or they worked in a bunch of fine dining restaurants that were molecular gastronomy based on top of French technique. It was a lot of that. And then there was like Japanese sprinkled throughout. And I think I'm trying to find if there was even any that were like identified as anything else. Oh, New Nordic was in there too. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of obviously the Californian cuisine. There's like the stuff that came out of California and (laughs) Noma. Hmm. Um, All of that like hyper locality, but it's all still on the basis of French technique. (laughs) And there were a few Italian inspired Mm. That was a lot of the other ones. It was like Italian-inspired, French-inspired. Anyway, so it's all basically European. Yes, so when so we look European. at it, it's like, oh, it's diverse because it's 85% contemporary. And then Japanese is second. It's no, it was still majority European-focused. Right. And when you look at the drop-off after that, so 85, 45 for Japanese, the next closest thing is 13. That's a big yeah. number switch. And what was the next one, 13. Californian. So yeah. kind of so a different word for still. contemporary. Something that I found was so interesting when we were talking with Krishnendu and he was talking about his research on the New York list. Mm-hmm. So he was taking the whole guide and was talking about percentages. The vast difference in when you compare the whole guide to the stars in the changes of just the lack of diversity in food. My Yelp data 2018. Here's the Yelp data. Price and popularity. For New York City. So popularity, of course, it goes like this on the y-axis. It's Italian, Chinese, Mexican in terms of popularity, okay? Japanese, New American, Southern, Spanish, Thai, Korean, Indian, Arab, French, Greek, Vietnamese, Israeli, Peruvian, Moroccan. This is, if you have more than 250 hits, it shows up in terms of just popularity. 
But if you then look at the data, Yelp has a category pricey and very expensive. I collapse the pricey and very expensive data. And here is Yelp data for the most prestigious and the most expensive. Number one, French. So today, if you call something French, you're more likely to be high-end restaurant, even today. Next is New American, what in Michelin can be called contemporary American, innovative American, et cetera, et cetera. Japanese is at 8%. There are a lot of cheap Japanese places now, and which are mostly not run by Japanese, run by Asians, mostly Chinese. And that's what happens. In Japanese case, you have popularity now catching up with the very pricey upper end, the masas, etc. Indian, Arab, Vietnamese, very low. Only 2 to 3% are high-end, expensive. Okay? Oh, by the way, you can sell the same food and call it Israeli. You can charge a lot more than if you call it Arab which is what I call a hierarchy of taste. There's no difference in terms of the food. It's a difference of the class and the people who we associate. I think the other component to this that has surprised, no, surprise isn't even the right word, <laughs> been frustrating, but also not that surprising, is how they go about choosing where they go. How they go about it is incredibly... Well, true to their history, shall we say. It's yeah. all marketing. Deeply like. tied to tourism. Yeah. So the two most recent expansion locations are Florida that had a list released this past year, 2022. And then a new recent addition was the state of California. So instead of just San Francisco and Los Angeles, they expanded to be like California. Yeah. And this was... They did have stuff in California, and then it went away, and then it came back. I found this quote, which I thought was really funny. So 2008 apparently was a period of global expansion for the Michelin Guide, according to an article that I found by Helen Rosner. That's when they came to L.A., but it was like the following year or two years later, they closed it. 2010. 2010, yeah. Two years later, they're like, oh, never mind. And they cited the financial crisis... But the director at the time declared that the people in Los Angeles are not real foodies. They are not too interested in eating well, but just in who goes to which restaurant and where they sit. Which I thought was hilarious because isn't that all of the restaurants on the Michelin Guide? is just like the who's who of right. restaurants. Places to see and be seen. So that was why they took LA off their list of places to go. Which I thought was hilarious. They came back in 2022 with the whole state guide. Whole state of California. Mm -hmm. Got it. And that was large part due to the California Tourism Board, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the California Tourism Board paid the Michelin Guide to come to California. They struck a deal. Michelin doesn't release the amounts that they are paid to go to certain places. Mm, but they have figures. confirmed that, yeah, this is a deal that we made with the California Tourism Board. Same with Florida. Visit Florida. Florida Tourism struck a deal with Michelin, and that is what solidified Michelin coming to Florida. It's not so much anymore places that have caught somebody's eye. It's places that are striking deals and are paying money, good money. I just Googled this. Florida's tourism board will pay Michelin $150,000 to rate the state's restaurants. Who reported that? Rob Report. Yeah, $150,000. And they'll review all of Florida. I think that's confusing and another weird misnomer because they said all of Florida, but then a lot of places said it was 
that the, I mean, I guess nobody knows because nobody knows the inspectors, but that they were going to Miami, Orlando, and I think it was Tampa, Tampa. I think, yeah. But Tampa didn't get any stars, and a lot of people had some big feelings about it. Those three cities, like, all contributed money. Right. They to all paid be able in. to bring them there. And then they're like, mm, Tampa, you're not worth it. But you still paid for it. It's not merit-based, but they want to make it seem like it's merit-based. And it's like a pay-to-play system now. Not now. <laughs> it's a pay-to-play system. It always has been. And I'm looking at, apparently, the reason that Florida decided to do this is like food and beverage revenue account for more than 20% of total tourism spending in Florida. And it's like billions of dollars in each of those cities. So it makes you wonder there's all this money getting moved around and like how much money a star brings into a restaurant. Like certainly it's great marketing that can't be denied. This is a big marketing effort. Mm -hmm. And when you get your name on a list, people talk about it and will go because of it. But I wonder if restaurant owners, their bottom line, like their books, if getting a star does make that difference or if it brings with it a lot of other things. Yeah. I'm sure it's a double-edged sword. I think it was Le Bernardin, Eric Repair. He said something about how his revenue went up like 20% after receiving his stars in 2005. So that was like a while ago. Right. So like I'm sure restaurants either will have more bookings or they can maybe raise prices a little bit more because now they're a star. The other thing that, that Ferran Adria said was basically – there is the spectrum in a restaurant industry and on the one far one side it is a business and on the far other side you as a chef are an artist and you have to figure out where on that spectrum you fall right and i think you can see that in the writings about a lot of the nouvelle chefs right of did they get caught is it now so expensive to run restaurants at that level or is it bad for mental health? That's the other thing I think that's coming in post-COVID is the mental health of chefs and restaurant workers. Of Is it just too much? Is the expectation too much? And is it unsustainable from that point of view? So talking about money and talking about highly beloved restaurants that like how they make it work, I think we can't not talk about Noma. Yeah. Beloved three michelin star place they also have the sustainability green clover from michelin oh yeah 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 yeah. i forgot about that <laughs> so silly <laughs> announced that they'll be closing they're not actually going to be closing until 2024 yeah two fucking years and renee redzepi cited that it's just too expensive yeah it's unsustainable obviously running these restaurants is expensive and the hype from getting a star probably is a big burst and then like a slow kind of you know you're not always getting that kind of big attention Mm -hmm. but Noma is the place that everybody like all the time it's like a calling card it's definitely a place that people talk about I think it's a place that people make a special trip you know people travel (laughs) to go eat there yeah and they're saying that it's not this could be a whole nother episode so maybe we don't get into it I think that it's showing a change in the way people feel about fine fine dining and I think that also shows a change in the way people feel about the Michelin Guide. I'm glad you brought it up because I think it is important because you mentioned like the people that work in these Michelin starred kitchens right so obviously there's a lot of work that goes into making the food that is 
seen as valuable to the Michelin system. And I think the future of restaurant review is at stake. Can we basically continue advising rich people where to eat? Or should we do something else with the restaurant review? I think we are in the cusp of radical rethinking about A, do we even, is the print media even relevant? B, what kind of genre rules do we have to follow to write something called a restaurant review, where the restaurant itself and the professional cooking itself is a form of exclusion, no matter how much we bring in people of other genders, other races. It is about a certain kind of cooking and eating. And so my book is saying this is a structural constraint, and we probably cannot change it until we destroy the restaurant as we know it. Food at all levels is undervalued. The labor that goes into food is highly undervalued for so many reasons that we've talked about on this podcast, Um, specifically in the U.S. too. And I think Noma is the poster child right now because they have gotten all of the accolades. They're like world's 50 best multiple times. They are three Michelin stars now and all that stuff. And they have built this entire brand that has trickled down like across the world. As I was saying, New Nordic, that was all Noma. It expanded everywhere. So they built this entire brand around free labor. And then they were forced to start paying for said labor by these cultural movements that are happening. And now they're like, oh, my God, it's so unsustainable. It has always been unsustainable. And as I was seeing, I mean, everybody's talking about it, but as a lot of black and brown women and people have been saying forever, <laughs> like, yeah, no shit, it's unsustainable. And if a person at the top of the game, Noma, Red Zeppi, is like, oh, this is unsustainable, it's a cop out. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And it seems to me like it's a system that was built to, t- like, yeah, it feels almost predatory to take advantage of 24-year-old Katie types who were <laughs> like, if I want to be a chef, I have to go to a three Michelin place because it's the only place where I'm going to learn the skills and I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, they're not going to pay me to work. Like, I don't know anything. So I'm going to go and I'm going to work for free and that. And then they have to pay them and the thing falls apart. And it feels like that rating system and that hierarchy of the Michelin guide is like a very useful cog to keep that elite system going where people feel like there are certain places that they Mm. have to be a part of Mm. and to be like willing to give Mm -hmm. something i.e their wages Mm -hmm. to get that experience or be in that club and it just is saying that this is bogus for a long time and now it's silly that the person who is making all the money and benefiting off of it is like getting a lot of attention for being like Oh, hey. It's unsustainable. I can't do it, and I'm not interested, and we'll figure out something else, but this one isn't making me enough money. Yeah, and this is the way that a lot of folks, it's not just Renee Redzepi, this is a lot of different things that are happening. This is something that Ashton Berry, who's a hospitality industry activist, posted. They got all these accolades, they built up this brand, and now... It's a marketing and cash grab to be able to use all this social justice language of, oh, it's unsustainable. I don't want to do this to my staff. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to me. And they can use kind of that social justice language to distance themselves from things like the Michelin Guide and from the wealth or whatever 
and then not close for two years and then get more money to be able to build their brand further with probably even more exclusive pop-ups and things like that. Absolutely. That's the whole journey, at least that I have gone through over the last five years since working for free for three months and then working in a Michelin star kitchen and being like, wait a second. I would now give the Michelin Guide no stars. Zero stars. Not even Viv Gourmand, not even recommended. (laughs) Michelin Guide gets no stars. Not even on your list. Not even on the list. And I say that, and like I do still sometimes go to places that have Michelin stars, and I do still have friends that work in Michelin star kitchens and have a lot of strong feelings about the Michelin Guide and are working in places that are like actively trying to go from two to three stars or actively trying to go from one to two stars and like... There is a lot of prestige associated with that. It is good for your career to work in places like that. So it's like a double-edged sword and it's still a really embedded part of the culture. And like we as Copper and Heat probably couldn't have gotten to where we are without the fact that I worked at Manresa, a three-star place. Absolutely. I don't think that's going to go away quickly, but there is going to continue to be this critique and criticism of it, I think it will slowly maybe take a backseat. Or a Michelin guy is just going to rebrand. I think we're at a time where they're kind of walking a fine line of people are still starting to be like, eh, this feels mm-hmm. stuffy or this doesn't feel appropriate for the age that we're in, questioning mm-hmm. how things are happening. But it is, like you said, such an important benchmark in the industry and it does have so much prestige. Will they rebrand? Will they stay steadfast? You can kind of see if you look throughout what they've done in the past they have tried to do things like the bib gourmand like the sustainability Mm. award to like stay more current but the three-star system still is very staunchly french and stuffy and expensive and elite i just wonder if it's gonna shift and change or if it's just gonna be one of those things that some people love because they're very eurocentric and then some people just are like no that is not it. How would you rate the Michelin Guide now? <laughs> Seeing all that you have seen, all the research that you've done. I think for me, it's got to be one star. I don't know that this is a value star. This is more like a interest and like, wow, what a thing star. Like what a strange thing for an entire company to build up and people are obsessed with it. It is their life's work. Mm-hmm. And it's still going and people still use it as the benchmark. It really is the restaurant thing. Well, isn't the number the one star, as Michelin says it, is like great cuisine in its category. So Michelin Guide in the category of elite rating systems. Great rating system of its own. (laughs) I'm not going to take a trip. No, I think it is a dated system. I think it is not very accurate like I don't think the Michelin guide is currently putting the most interesting food into its guides Mm -hmm. because the most interesting food happens everywhere it doesn't just happen in five cities in America and I think it isn't always just French food so I think that yeah it becomes a very white very specific list and you lose a lot when you have that is it truly fascinating Mm -hmm. the little not little michelin is huge (laughs) the tire company that had an incredible (laughs) rebrand not even rebrand an incredible 
marketing campaign. Yeah, honestly, it's just really good propaganda. It's really good marketing. Is it a good thing for the food industry? Point five stars. <laughs> One half bite of a star. That's what I give it. This was the last episode of the fourth season of Copper and Heat. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep up to date with what we're doing during this break time, follow us in your favorite podcast app or find us on all of the various social channels at Copper and Heat. You can learn more from Krishnendu by reading his book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, or... A good place to find my work, recent work, is in Gastronomic at the Journal, and we do a podcast. Beth also has a book that you can read. It tastes place in space, and that is by Bloomsbury. This episode was produced by Rachel Palmer and me, Katie Osuna. Music and sound design was by Ricardo Osuna. Mixing and mastering was by Adrian Lilly. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.